Well, good morning. My name is Ben Robin, if I haven't met you yet. I'm one of the pastors of the church that meets in this building. And we're going to be in 2 John this morning. 2 John this morning. If you don't have a Bible, grab that red Bible in the pew in the back of the one in front of you. It's on page 1025. Page 1025. You might realize 2 John is a break from our series in Ephesians, which was itself a break in our series through Acts. Garrett is out of town, Jason is out of town, Brian has moved to Minneapolis, Bill is preaching at another church, so here am I, <laughs> Second John. <laughs> Let me pray one more time and ask for God's help as we intend to hear and do his word. Father, we thank you that you are there and that you are not silent, that you have spoken to us in your word. We confess and we trust that your word is truth in every detail, small and great, in every letter, every book. And we trust that it's meant for us to see Jesus, your son. So we pray that you would help us because if you don't, we won't understand and we won't do this word. So would you give us grace that we might see Jesus and continue to faithfully follow him? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So who really loves you? And how do you know? Just think for a minute about the doctor. You've come to see her you have a problem and she withholds that difficult diagnosis because it's hard for you to hear she thinks you don't want to be told that your kidney's failing we need to operate right now you don't want to be told that you have cancer and we need to start chemotherapy and so she withholds the truth she instead gives you a lie not all the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Is that love? Or think about the father whose kids play on whatever sports team you like. And at the end of the game, child doesn't win. Father says, it's okay, honey. You did great out there. You were the best on the team. Kid was objectively not the best on the team. <laughs> this is not like everybody gets a participation trophy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about deception, a lie, objectively speaking. I know good fathers comfort their children. I think that's a good godly thing to do. But they don't lie to do it. Is that love? I don't think so. And I think that's what we're going to see in 2 John this morning. True love and loving truth and how they relate to each other. Listen to God's word in 2 John. I'll start in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves 
so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not abide in the, does not have God, excuse me. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. If I were to summarize all of 2 John, I might say it like this. You cannot walk in love if you do not walk in truth. You cannot walk in love if you do not walk in truth. See, for John, in the Bible, in Christianity, truth and love are interconnected. And the connection is so tight, so close, so strong, that the two are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. If you don't have both truth and love, you don't have truth or love. To lose one loses or seriously misshapes the other. This is not just like salt and pepper. It's not just like peanut butter and jelly. It's not even just like twin siblings. Each of those things, you can have one without the other. Not having one does no harm to the other. In fact, some might say peanut butter and chocolate go, to better, go better together anyway. I certainly think so. No, truth and love are more like the two feet you need to walk. If you don't have both, you lose your balance or you lose your way. That's what I think we see in 2 John. You cannot walk in love if you do not walk in truth. So we're going to take the text in two steps. First in verses 1 to 6, walk in love. Second in verses 7 to 13, walk in truth. First, walk in love. Second, walk in truth. Listen to verses 1 and 2 again as we consider that first point, walk in love. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. We think this letter of 2 John was written by John the Apostle in the late 1st century, probably 85 to 95 AD, somewhere around there. John the Apostle wrote other books of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we're just looking at 2 John. He also wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. He refers to himself as the elder, which is very significant, that word, the. I think it signifies that he's the last of the apostles, that he in himself, because of Jesus' commission to him, carries some recognized authority that stands apart from just an ordinary elder. Notice this is not elders, in the New Testament, when we're talking about the pastoral office or the office of elder, it's always plural, elders. This is the elder. It's John, the apostle. He's intending to convey some sort of unique spiritual authority and maturity. He's a father in the faith writing to his children, spiritually, and his grandchildren, spiritually speaking. John's audience in all three of his letters, 1st, 2nd, and John, is a group of churches, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is a group of churches in and around Ephesus which was a Roman province of Asia. This letter, 2 John, is written to one of those churches, which he calls the elect lady and her children. The elect lady and her children in verse 1. Lady, you might not know this, is the female form of the word Lord. You know the word Lord in Greek is kurios. This is kuria. It's the female form of the same word. So you have the Lord, Jesus, and his lady, the church. She's not just any lady, she's the chosen lady, the elect lady. There's a couple of things this phrase could refer to. It's either a local church and its members, which is what I'm going to argue for, or it's the universal church, which transcends time and space, or it's a specific woman in a congregation and her biological, physical family. I think it's almost certainly a designation for a church and its members, a church different from the one that John is in, the elder, which is clear from verse 13. He talks about the elect sister, which is, I think is his congregation. 
four reasons why I think this refers to a church. It's going to be relevant for how we interpret the rest of the passage. Number one, the pervasive second person plural, you, in the rest of the letter. With the exception of verse one and verse four, the word you is always plural. It's y'all. That's how we say it where I'm from. So he's writing to a, a group of Christians, not you singular, but you plural. Number two, in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, are often referred to in feminine terms. Feminine roles, like wife, like bride, like mother, like daughter. It's very common. Israel's referred to in all of those ways. So it's normal in the Bible to characterize the people of God in female terms, elect lady and her children. Number three, the church in Rome, Peter calls she who is at Babylon, 1 Peter 5.13. She who is at Babylon. And then number four, I've already said, the elect sister at the end of the letter in verse 13. I think for all of those reasons, we should take the elect lady and her children as referring spiritually to the, metaphorically, to the congregation. He's addressing all the Christians in this one church, in this group of churches in Ephesus. Are you with me? Praise the Lord. Well, this is one congregation that's addressed in 2 John. All the congregations in Ephesus are addressed in 1 John, which if you haven't been with us in equipping hour this summer, we've been going through 1 John, a bunch of different brothers teaching that class. The churches involved in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John all have the same historical situation, which again is going to be really relevant to considering the rest of the letter. And I can't just skip over this because we're touching down in 2 John <laughs> this morning. So a couple of things characterize John's context. First, there are disputes internally about beliefs and behavior. There are people in these congregations who are arguing with each other about how you have to live as a Christian, what you must believe as a Christian. Those disputes result in a serious, significant, sharp disagreement. There are some saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that he wasn't actually the son of God, that his sacrificial death wasn't necessary to forgive sin. I get this all from 1 John chapter 4 and 5. 1 John 4, 2 through 3, they were denying Jesus came in the flesh. 1 John 4, 15, they were denying that he's the son of God. 1 John 5, 6 through 7, they were saying only his water is necessary, not his blood. So these are serious doctrinal disagreements, sharp ones. Disagreements, disputes over beliefs and behavior, denials of the incarnation, the sonship of Jesus and his sacrificial death, and then ultimately departures from the congregation after that disagreement. But these people who rose up in the midst of the people of God saying false things about Jesus eventually left. John says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, because they weren't of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But now they've gone out so that we might know that they're not actually with us. That's what happens. The false teachers depart from the congregation because of their different beliefs about Jesus. And that's actually not where it stops. It's incredibly relevant for 2 John. They leave after disagreement, but then they start coming back. Some of them become itinerant preachers. They come back to the congregations in Ephesus, John's congregations, and they try to deceive the people of God to follow after another Jesus. So there are disputes, denials, departures, and then they become deceivers. He writes about them explicitly in verse 7. We'll get there. But all three letters of John address this same historical situation. In 1 John, he gives you a circular letter to all the churches in Ephesus to expose this false teaching and heresy for what it is. In 1 John, he gives you a series of tests you can apply. When someone comes to you and says, I'm from God, listen to me, John says, look at their life. They'll show they're with God if they obey God's commandments. If they disregard God's commandments, you can know they're not from God. He also says, look at how they treat the brothers and sisters, the other Christians. If they're Christians, they love God, and they love God's people. If they don't love God's people, you can disregard what they say. He also says, look at their doctrine. If they don't confess Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, you can disregard what they say. They're not from God. 
That's 1 John. The moral test, do they obey God's commandments? The social test, do they love God's people? The doctrinal test, do they confess God's son? And you probably heard as I read 2 John, a lot of those same themes come up in 2 John and then in 3 John. Well, 2 John, as I said earlier, is a, a letter to one of these congregations. And it's a warning, specifically, about these false teachers. It's, it's an address about those who have a different faith and how we can't have fellowship with them because of it. Third John is another letter to this congregation, and it's an address about how we ought not partner with those who have a different faith. We're going to be together in October, one of the first weeks of October, and consider Third John as well. Today, we just look at Second John. So if Second John is about faith and fellowship, Third John is about faith and partnership. That's how I'm distinguishing the two. Look back at verse 1. John addresses these, this congregation in Ephesus, and he says he loves them in truth. And it's not only John that loves them, but everyone who knows the truth. John and his hearers are in the truth, and he loves them. And he doesn't just love them truly, he loves them in the truth. That is, his love is grounded by the truth they share. Does that make sense? His love is grounded in their common truth. It's not just true love, it's love in truth. You see the distinction? Well, what is the truth? What is truth? I think in 2 John, truth is Jesus and his word. Jesus and his gospel. It's the message of Christ. Not just that it's the message about Christ, but also the message from Christ. It's both together. It's Jesus and his word. It's the gospel. It's the gospel not to the exclusion of Jesus, but including Jesus. Supremely in 2 John, it's the doctrine that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And only this kind of truth can ground love. As we read this today and think about how it applies to us, we ought to ask the question, does this truth ground our love? Does the gospel ground our love? Why do we love one another? For those in the room who are Christians, especially members of this church, we ought to love one another because we share the same Jesus. So we're not loving one another primarily because of our personalities or our interests or our dispositions or shared hobbies, the way we spend our time. All that stuff is great. Share that in common. But most fundamentally, we love one another because we have the same Jesus, because we're in the same truth. We confess the same gospel. He's saved us from our sins, which means we can actually love people with different personalities, different dispositions, different interests, different hobbies, different backgrounds, different educations, and we ought to. We ought to not only love Christians in our church, but other Christian churches. This is why, as Ben Brophy prayed, a moment ago, we pray for other churches in our pastoral prayer almost every Sunday when we gather as a church because they share in the same truth we proclaim here, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You'll notice we pray only for certain kinds of churches, gospel churches. If we were to pray for other kinds of churches, we would pray very differently. God save them, not God use them to save people. You see the difference? Verse 2, he loves them in truth. Everyone in the truth loves them. And the truth abides in them, in fact, he says, in us, and will be with us forever. How? How is truth going to be in us and with us forever? Well, since Jesus is the truth, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. And since Jesus promises his presence with his people forever, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. The truth abides in us and with us forever. Jesus and his word are the truth. And then in verse 3, he gives you the gospel blessings for those in truth. Grace, mercy, and peace, verse 3, will be with us. Notice that phrase, will be with us, is the same as verse 2. So there's a close connection between truth, the gospel, 
and grace, mercy, and peace, the blessings of God in the gospel. Can't have one without the other. These words are so common in the Bible and in our language, it's helpful to have a working definition of each of them. Just briefly, grace is unmerited favor from God. You can't earn it or deserve it. He gives it because he's good. Grace. It's been accurately summarized as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's right. That's what grace is. Mercy is forgiveness for sin. It's not getting what you deserve. Each of us here deserves to be punished because we've disobeyed God. God offers forgiveness, mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. That's mercy. Peace is wholeness. Shalom in the Old Testament. It's especially freedom from hostility and conflict that God has reconciled warring factions, him and us. He's given us peace. Notice, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. That's a certainty. It's unlike some of the other New Testament letters. You know how Paul opens up his letters often with grace to you, peace to you, grace and peace, as if he wishes they would have it? That's a good, fine thing to say. John is saying something stronger than that. It will be with you. It's an encouragement, an assertion that grace, mercy, and peace are ours in Christ. It's the same as the truth that is with us forever. But did you notice where John goes to ground the gospel blessings? It's into the inner life of God. John grounds gospel blessings in the depths of God. Did you notice that? He says it's from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. How do you make sense of that? There's one God, the Father, and the Father's Son. Well, only with the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's where John goes. When you share the gospel, when you share God's grace, mercy, and peace with people, do you talk about the Trinity? John does. That's fascinating, isn't it? John thinks that gospel blessings are grounded in the deep things of God. For us, do we consider the deep things of God? I've been so encouraged uh, over the last couple of months by a group of brothers in our church who are reading through Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God, which is a great way to consider the deep things of God. It's a 600-page, dense theology book. I like really thick, dense theology books. They're sometimes helpful. Maybe you've heard me talk a lot about Bovink or Maastricht or old dead guys who are helpful. It's not because the old dead guys are great. It's actually like they're telescopes. You use a telescope to see something great. The stars, Orion's belt, whatever your favorite constellation is. That's why people are helpful to us, because they help us to see God and God's word with greater clarity. So don't get a degree in telescope studies, <laughs> theologically. No, just use them as they help you to consider the deep things of God. He gives you where all this comes from, where it's grounded in truth and love in verse 3. That's the unity we've been talking about made explicit. It's not one without the other. Shailen says in a song, like Boaz without Ruth is unity without truth. We could say the same thing about love. Like Boaz without Ruth is love without truth. You need both. You need both truth and love. You cannot walk in love if you do not walk in truth. Now, given John's audience's situation, these false teachers who've come back to the congregations to deceive them away from Jesus, I wonder if you noticed the fourfold comfort he gives in the first three verses. There's a comfort for those who are in the truth in these first four verses. He asserts, you are in the truth. It's not just you, but others are in the truth with you. You will be kept in the truth, and it's by the very power and goodwill of God himself that God has put you in the truth with others in the truth and keeps you in the truth, which is extremely comforting, confidence-producing, encouraging. If you've got people who are walking in a lie, who are trying to persuade you away from Jesus, you see why John writes that the way he does? Well, this, this comfort is, is only for people who are in the truth. We should realize that. There may be some among us today who are visiting, 
who aren't following Jesus, who would say that they know that, don't think the Bible is true, don't think Jesus is God's son. And I would just say, John would say that you are not in the truth, but you can be. You can have that fourfold comfort, that confidence, that courage that comes from knowing God and knowing God with other people. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have grace, mercy, and peace. And I would urge you to do that while you still can. See, each of us has sinned against God. We've not done what he said. We've done what he said not to do. And we need him to forgive our sin. He's the only one who can. We need to go to Jesus to get our sins forgiven. Why? Because he died in the place of sinners. And he rose from the dead, triumphing over sin, death, and the grave. And he offers forgiveness to anyone who will turn from sin and trust in him. You too can be in the truth, even if you're not right now. And if you don't know what that means or you want to know more, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Or you could just turn to someone sitting next to you who knows Jesus and ask them. It would be a great way to spend this Lord's Day. But for believers, for those who are in the truth, take this comfort. You're in the truth with others in the truth, and you'll be kept there by God himself. Verses 4 to 6 now. Listen again. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment that we, uh, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk not according, or that, excuse me, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John gives you in verse 4 how people in the truth relate to one another. In love and joy. Do you see that it produces great joy in him to know that some Christians are walking in the truth? We ought to ask if we rejoice when others walk in the truth. And I want you to think about it not just as a, a feeling of joy, of happiness, but I want you to think about if it shows up to somebody who's not you. Could someone who's not you look at your life and know that you rejoice when others walk in the truth? Each of us has ordered our lives around a certain schedule, whether it's with a Google calendar or a physical planner. The things we go to and don't go to tell us, show us, and especially show others what we rejoice in. So do you prioritize God and his people? And certainly, I mean right now in this room on Sunday morning, but I also mean when the church scatters. Could someone looking at your calendar tell that you rejoice when someone's walking in the truth? Do you feed those saints who are having trouble putting food on the table? Do you give to support them? Do you help them pack when they move? All sorts of things that are emailed about on the Google group. Many of us do, and I'm so encouraged by it. That's a way of expressing our joy when others walk in the truth by helping them to walk in the truth, by being with them and continuing to do so. You may have noticed, as one commentator said, truth is portrayed kind of like a path that we walk along, and we're not supposed to deviate from it. We have to keep on it. Don't go right or left. Truth is kind of like a path that Christians walk in, and false teachers are walking in a lie and not the truth. And we should realize that's not just a simple mistake or an accident. They didn't just happen off the path. It's disobedience to God, to his clear word, which is where John goes next in verse 4, just as we were commanded by the Father. See, when you deviate from the truth, you're disobeying God. What is the command of the Father? Well, I think simply it's to walk in truth. First John 3, 23, listen. And this is his commandment, that's the Father's, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. So the Father commands us to believe in his Son, Jesus. And along with that, he commands us to love one another. Believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Believe in the Lord Jesus, it's the gospel. The Father commands us to believe. You might think of a bunch of stories of the life of Jesus in the Gospels uh, that help to explain this sort of 
language, the command of the Father to believe in the Son. Think, for example, of Jesus' baptism. He goes down into the water, he comes up, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the voice from heaven, which is the voice of the Father, says, this is the Son I love, listen to him. There's the command of the Father. Believe in the Son. In verse 5, John gives you his first command in his letter. It's interesting, it's five verses in before he's said to do anything. He says, I ask you that we love one another. That's the command. Love one another. He says, dear lady, again, to refer to the elect lady and her children. Again, I think it's a, a local church, as we've said. You'll notice that the love one another command is not singular, it's plural. Y'all love one another. He says, it's not a new commandment, but you've had it from the beginning. There's a really helpful parallel in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Listen. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So which is it, John, old or new? <laughs> and he says it's both. There's an oldness and a newness. We need to understand the oldness and the newness of this love one another command. It's old in the sense that it goes all the way back to Moses. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus said was the second great commandment. So you're to love God, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. All the way back in Leviticus, all the way back in Moses. It's also basic to your Christian life. You've had it from the beginning in the sense that as soon as you became a Christian, you were to believe in Jesus and love other people who do. So love one another is basic. You've had it from the beginning. That's the old. It's as old as Moses. It's as old as you becoming a Christian. What's the new? Well, the new is that in John 13, 34 and 35, John, Jesus says, you want to know how the world will know that you're with me, with Jesus? It's if you love one another. And not just as you love yourself but as Jesus has loved you. So the old, love your neighbor as yourself, the new, love other Christians the way Jesus has loved you. And I think John puts both together here for us. Because we're to walk in love. But why? Why this command to love in 2 John? He tells you that we should love one another, puts himself in it. I think it's because he doesn't want this church to break fellowship with him and his church. That we should walk in love with everyone who's in the truth. Of course, the flip side of the coin is we should break fellowship with anyone who's outside the truth, who's in a lie. And I think it's both. I think love one another for John means both. Maintain fellowship with God's people, break fellowship with false teachers. That's what he's going to do in the last half of the, the epistle. Maybe you're sitting there and wondering, how in the world is breaking fellowship with someone loving? That doesn't sound very loving. I would say it's loving in at least three ways. It's loving to false teachers because it's clear with them about what the truth is, that if they will turn from their ways and back to Jesus, they can be forgiven, reconciled to God, reconciled to God's people, I think it's loving to point that out. I think it's loving to the watching world to be clear about truth because heaven and hell hang in the balance. They are real places that real people are actually going and it's loving to tell people who are headed to hell that there's a way they can turn around and go to heaven. And I think it's loving for the congregation and for other churches as an encouragement to keep walking in the truth, keep walking after Jesus. Don't turn to the right or to the left, after the lie. Follow the real Jesus, the true Jesus, the only Jesus there actually is. So I think it's loving to false teachers, to the watching world, and to other Christians to be clear on truth. I think that's what Christian love entails. This is one of the reasons why we do doctrinal statements and church discipline. 
Because we think Christian love entails being clear about truth. And that's why we've summarized in our church statement of faith everything we think that's basic to Christianity. Who God is, what the Bible says, who Jesus is, what he's done, how you can have your sins forgiven. It's all summarized in our church statement of faith, the most fundamental foundations of the faith. It's also why we do church discipline, because it's loving to separate from false teachers. We had a really long and hard members meeting on Sunday night, the longest and hardest I've been in since I've been here. I just want you to know I was assigned this text on this Sunday in God's good, kind, and sometimes strange to us providence. So what is love? Verse 6 tells you. What is love? Love is obedience to God's word. It's obedience to God's commands. He says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. So that means love is not primarily a feeling, even a strong one. A passion, we might use that word. It's actually an action, mainly. We ought to take verse 6 and apply it to our lives in at least three ways. Number one, let God in the Bible define love for you. Let God in the Bible define love for you. It's not mainly a way you feel. It's a thing you do. That love for another person is obeying God's word in relation to them between you and them. That's what love is. Love is obedience to God's commands. Number two, you're going to have to know the commands if you intend to love people. You're going to have to study the Bible to understand what God commands. So memorize it, meditate on it, read it, read it again, read it again. (laughs) If we're going to let God define love according to obedience to his commands, and if we want to love people, we need to know the commands of God. And then also, I would say we should move toward others in love. We should move towards others in love, not away, and not in a differently defined love. There's all sorts of people today claiming that they know what love is. And I'm not standing here telling you what Ben Robin thinks about what love is. I'm trying to tell you what God thinks love is. From 2 John, verse 6, it's obedience to God's word. The Puritan Bible commentary Commentator Matthew Henry said it really well when he said, It's a sign that our friends are faithful indeed if in love to our souls they will not suffer sin upon us nor let us alone in it. Move toward people in Christian love. If you see them straying from the truth, encourage them to get back on the path. This means that rebukes and admonishment and correction actually can be love. Have you ever thought about that? Do you let yourself be corrected and so receive Christian love? I think according to God's word, we ought to. Because we are to walk in love. All right, number two, walk in truth. We've considered walk in love. Let's look at walk in truth. Starting in verse 7. I'm going to reread verse 7 through 9. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That little word for at the beginning of verse 7 tells you why he just told you to love one another. Because Christian love entails separating from false teachers. Because you cannot walk in love unless you walk in truth. So we move to look at walk in truth. I think it's important that we distinguish deceiving and being deceived. Vitally important that we distinguish deceiving and being deceived. I think you understand intuitively the difference. Someone can receive falsehood and walk in it, even if they mean well. 
That's being deceived. Someone can propagate falsehood and try to lead others astray. That's deceiving. The difference is massive. Okay, people who are being deceived, and that's it, deserve a kind of sensitivity, love, care, kindness, compassion. There are straying sheep who know and love the Lord Jesus, who are being deceived, even in serious ways, who we should move towards in love to try and help them come back to the truth. That is not the person John is writing about. John is writing about deceivers, people who know what they're doing and who are trying to lead other people astray. There's a difference in how you relate to one or the other as a Christian. Notice the phrase that they've gone out into the world. This is actually a technical term for missionaries in the Bible. They've gone out into the world. These are Satan's missionaries, the deceivers. They've gone out into the world. John said, as I quoted earlier in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us, and their going out reveals that. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. On this topic of deception, the scariest monsters don't look scary. You should think about that. The scariest monsters do not look scary. An old pastor of mine always used to say, deception doesn't sound like deception. It sounds like the truth. That's what makes it deception. I don't know why we would read this and think deception is going to be really obvious to us. That wouldn't be deception. <laughs> deception doesn't sound like deception. It sounds like the truth. That's why I'm saying the scariest monsters don't look scary. Satan comes to us masquerading as an angel of light. That means he sounds reasonable, believable. He looks friendly when he's not. That's how deception works. I remember when I was in senior year of high school, I was in choir, and we were being introduced to this new song by Mrs. Mueller, our, our choir and music theory teacher. And it's, a, uh, it's an old German poem, uh, poem called The Earl King in English, or The Elf King, written by the German poet Goethe, put to music by Franz Schubert in like the 19th century. It's one of the hardest things to play on piano that there is, as I understand it. And in the poem, Goethe understands that the scariest monsters don't look scary. And he talks about the king of the forest, the king of the elves, who lures away little children. He's like a German boogeyman. So the whole poem is about this father and his son who are riding on horseback home. The narrator comes in and introduces the scene, that the father is riding on the horse with the son on his back. And then there's this king of the elves, the king of the forest, who starts speaking to the son, the little child. In the Old English translation, it's an infant. It's a very young child. The father can't hear the Earl King as a boogeyman. The son, throughout the poem, progressively gets more and more and more alarmed. Father, father, don't you understand? The Earl King is coming for me. The father says, no, 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 it's just the leaves. It's just the wind through the trees. And that's because the Earl King is played by the soprano part. It's high-pitched, sweetly sounding. It's alluring. It's seductive. It's deceptive. The father just brushes it off. The child realizes, my life is in danger. Help me. The poem picks up. The horse speeds up. The father arrives at home, and the last line of the poem, there the child lay, dead in his arms. See, the scariest monsters don't look scary, and deceivers like the ones in this letter are going to lead us to a much worse death. The second death in the lake of fire. If we listen to them, if we don't walk in the truth. This deception is about the person and work of Christ, as verse 7 makes clear. They don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. As I said earlier, they're denying the incarnation. That Jesus, God the Son from eternity, became man. 
like one of us in every way, yet without sin. They're saying, no, he didn't. He only seemed to be human. Or he wasn't really God. They're saying his sacrificial death isn't necessary. Maybe they're saying your sin is not that bad. God's commands aren't that serious. Why are you taking yourself so seriously? I just don't want us to miss the, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is like the limb of a tree. And John grabs onto that limb and he means the whole tree. So it's not just like deception is only about the incarnation. I think that's clear from 1 John 4 and 5. Clearer. It's the whole tree. It's the whole person and work of Jesus. If someone comes to you saying that Jesus is different than the Jesus of the Bible, they are trying to deceive you, or they themselves are deceived. Do not listen to them. This specific heresy and false teaching is a double affront. It's a double attack. It opposes people by deceiving them, and it opposes Christ. That's why John says, this one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Verse 8 gives you how you walk in truth. It's the second command of the letter, that we're to watch ourselves. We're to stay in the truth, not go to the right or to the left. Watch yourselves is another plural command. It's like, y'all watch each other. It's not like each of you individually pay careful attention. It's like each of you pay careful attention to the rest of you. That's what it is. Watch yourselves. It's a call for the church community as a whole to watch out for each of its members. Guarding against deception is not something that only pastors do. It's something every Christian is supposed to be engaged in. We're all supposed to keep a close watch on ourselves and on the teaching because that's how God saves people. And that's where he goes next. So that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. In one theological word, it's perseverance. It's perseverance. It's the ultimate mark of a true Christian, the one who keeps being a Christian. And notice, we've got to get this right. You're not saved by your persevering. You're persevering because you're saved. It's massively important. The song, He Will Hold Me Fast, is right. We lose our grip, he doesn't. It's not finally that we're saved because we hold on to Jesus, but because he holds on to us and he keeps us holding on to him. Those are the Christians, the ones who are still believing when Jesus takes them home or when he comes back for them. Our walking in truth and love does not save us, but it does give evidence and testimony to Christ having saved us. So we ought to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. How serious do you take your Christian life and the spiritual disciplines? I mean, there's just something about bills where I rarely forget to pay them on time. Like, rarely. There's something about the trash that I take it out every week, and maybe I miss one, but by golly, I take it out the next week because it's overflowing. <laughs> Am I the same way with the Bible and prayer and church fellowship and evangelism? I confess I'm not, often. I confess the most important meeting on my calendar, the time when I meet with Jesus and his word, is the one I forget most often. I mean, I don't know about you, but people often do not show up late or just completely ghost me in meetings. It's very rare. How much do I ghost Jesus? Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. I'd also say we ought to use the way God has designed the Christian life to work or we shouldn't expect growth in our discipleship. So, so if God is walking on a path, by way of analogy, he's told us where he's going and where we can put ourselves in his way, so to speak. The Bible, prayer, the person of Christ, the church, his people. Go to those things. Don't neglect God's means and expect to grow. 
verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead, now notice, goes on ahead, they're progressing. These are the progressives. They've gone ahead of Jesus and his teaching. That's actually not progressive. It's regressive. It's as old as the Garden of Eden when Satan said, did God really say? To go ahead in this way is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It's to get off the path of truth. We ought not get ahead or behind. There's a way that we could be sinning, falling out of truth, if we say too little or if we say too much. We have a, a workshop on biblical exposition every October for the pastoral interns and preachers uh, in the area, in churches like ours. It's put on by the Simeon Trust, and they have a whole lesson at the beginning called staying on the line. Staying on the line. And they say, when you've got a passage and you're preaching it, don't go above it and say more than is there, and don't go below it and say less than is there. Both would be to err. We ought to stay in the line in the Christian life. We ought to keep pace with Jesus. We ought to follow after him. We shouldn't turn to the right or to the left. We shouldn't speed up ahead of him or slow down way behind him. We should say what God says and everything God says and only what God says. And we should be silent where God is silent. That's a good thing. The teaching of Christ, I think, is the same as what he means by the truth. In the first three verses, it's the gospel, the gospel truth, and the gospel love which characterizes Christians. Notice that in verses 9 and 10, it's abiding in the teaching that equals having God. And it's having the Son that equals having the Father. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. That's why in our church, we don't understand other religions to all be leading you to the same place as Christianity. Because they say different things about Jesus. And it's only by having the Son, Jesus, that you can have the Father. Garrett said before, and I think this is right, that yes, all roads lead to God. But only one leads to him as Father. All the rest lead to him as judge, and you do not want to face God as judge apart from Jesus. Verse 10 and 11, we're rounding third and coming home, and we've come to one of the thorniest parts of the passage. <laughs> Verse 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This is the third command in the letter. So we looked at walk in truth. I ask you to love one another. I'm sorry, walk in love. We're now looking at walk in truth, which involves staying in the truth and separating from false teachers. That's what he's doing in verse 10 and 11. Now, if you read that or heard that and you thought, wait a minute, is John saying I'm not supposed to invite the Mormon missionary into my home when he comes to evangelize me? I want to answer that question, because that's a great question. Because he says, don't receive him into your house. In order to understand this, we're going to have to understand the historical, cultural context of the time. What the greeting is. You see the greeting? Don't give him any greeting or you participate in his works, his wicked works. In the time when this was written, hosts guaranteed their guests as worthy individuals to the community. Strangers to a community had no standing in law or custom. They needed a patron, someone who would vouch for their character. This guy's good. You can, you can trust him. He's with me. That's what greeting means in this context. I think there's very good reason to take your house as the house of the people of God, the church, just like we took elect lady and dear lady and elect sister to refer to the congregation. So most immediately, don't invite false teachers into your congregation, into your membership, might be how we would apply it today. Don't greet them in a way that imparts Christianity to them. Separate instead from false teachers and reject their teaching. John Stott was very helpful on this. His, uh, his Letters of John commentary is excellent. He says, what John writes is relevant both to those who are so tolerant that they will condemn nobody's views and to those who are so intolerant that they will condemn everybody's views, which diverge from their own. 
It's neither one of those. It's not condemn everybody, and it's not condemn nobody. Not for John, at least. So let me give you a couple of distinctions quickly for discerning how this command applies. Number one, these are teachers. These are false teachers, not just people who believe false things. They are trying to propagate false teaching. Number two, these are official welcomes or greetings, not just passing exchanges. It's not, hey, what's up? It's brother, sister. They're official welcomes or greetings, not just passing exchanges. Number three, these are essential matters, not secondary or tertiary ones. We're talking about Jesus Christ having come in the flesh. There is nothing more essential and foundational to Christianity and the Bible than that. So John is not saying we shouldn't have shared the same room with Alexandria Presbyterian Church because we disagree on baptism. No. We agree on Jesus. <laughs> so it's great to share the same building. Praise God for that. These are essential matters, not secondary or tertiary ones. It's about the incarnation. Number four, this is fellowship, not evangelism. Okay, so the question about the missionary from another religion or a cult group that comes to your house, I just want us to understand this is about fellowship that we're not to have. It's not about evangelism. We should evangelize. That's a good godly thing to do. If they're going to evangelize you, you can at least evangelize them. So distinctions for discerning how this applies. These are teachers, not just believers. These are official welcomes, not just passing exchanges. This is an essential matter, not a secondary or tertiary one. And this is fellowship, not just evangelism. Stott summarizes, if John's instruction still seems harsh, it's probably because his concern for the glory of the Son and the good of human souls is greater than ours. If this still seems harsh, probably just because John has a big view of Jesus and he's clear on how people have their sins forgiven. So how might we take part in evil? Verse 11, by giving, encouraging, or aiding false teachers. That's my answer. By giving money, by giving housing to a false teacher, on their mission to propagate their false teaching. You should refuse to do that. Why? Because false teaching sends people to hell. It is not just a mistake or an accident. It is a serious hell-inviting error. So the prohibition in verses 10 and 11 is about a fellowship that does not fit because you're not in the same faith. We can only have fellowship with Christians we can't have fellowship with people of other faiths. That's the prohibition. Verse 12 and 13 concludes the letter. And it's about the kind of intimate fellowship that we are to have with Christians in love and in truth. There's a sense in which people in the truth have intimate fellowship as the consummation of their shared love in shared truth. He says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. That's literally mouth to mouth in the Greek. I was shocked to find that out. It is the most intimate expression you can imagine. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. And the greeting at the end is the flip side of the greeting we're not to give to false teachers. We are to greet Christians as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are to have intimate face-to-face -face fellowship. It's interesting, John uses the technology of his time, paper and ink, but he realizes its limitations, that it's not sufficient for Christian fellowship. If you remember playing Catan on Zoom like I do during COVID, it is no substitute for Christian fellowship. Technology is great. It can be good for Christian growth, but it's not sufficient. It can't replace face-to-face -face fellowship. So if we would walk with Christ, we must walk in love and in truth. And you cannot walk in love if you do not walk in truth. Let's pray and ask for God's help to do just that.
Father, we thank you for this word, hard as it may be to many of us. Help us, Lord, to be conformed to your word, conformed to the image of your son. Help us to think your thoughts after you, to follow Jesus on the path of love and truth. Help us to keep in step with your spirit. Help us to walk in a worthy manner of the calling to which we've been called. Help us to see Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, to love everything that he is, to love everything that he says, to be thankful and grateful for his having loved us and given himself in our place and for our sin and for our salvation. Help us, Lord, to live lives that honor you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.